Do you think they currently believe that they can do it? Students? Students? I think that there are some students. No, I think actually in working, you know, for over 30 years with students, there are a lot of students that lack confidence and kind of doubt whether or not their college material or whether or not um, they fit in or whether or not school is for them or question whether people really care about them. And I think that absolutely uh, we need to work on empowering our children. Hey there, everybody. It's me, Terry Eisman. Welcome back to the Find Your Calling podcast. Before I introduce our next guest, I got to touch on the elephant in the room or your car or your grandma's house or your neighbor's backyard, wherever you're listening to this. As you've probably heard or not heard, I've taken a teeny tiny vacation since July, but I am back and ready to kick off this fall quarter with each of you. Now, I'll be going easy on myself for a while. I won't be recording on a weekly basis, but I can promise you this. I'll pop in every month or so with, in the words of my high school history teacher, thanks, Ms. Kissin, a damn good guest that will get you thinking about what they said or what they chose not to say. Sometimes that can be equally revealing. So that said, thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, and with back to school season now in high gear, Please welcome the boss of the largest regional education body in America, LA County Superintendent for Education, Dr. Deborah Duardo. Superintendent Duardo, welcome to the program. Did I bungle your name, by the way? <laughs> it was pretty close. Pretty close? How do you say it? Duardo. Duardo. Okay, okay, got it. Okay, so Superintendent Duardo, welcome to the program. I appreciate you joining me, as I said to you uh, before we just started. You know, like you have probably so much to do right now uh, because we're in a pandemic where there's so much going on. Um, so I appreciate you doing this, really. Um, before we sort of get into all the nuts and bolts of policy and, and everything that we're going to sort of dive into, um, I don't think a lot of people know about you. Like, I don't think a lot of people know who you are. I think they're familiar maybe with their school district, um, but perhaps not with the L.A. County uh, Department for Education. So just quickly, um, you oversee the budget for 80 school districts, uh, student success outcomes, professional development. So you're kind of like the overarching governmental body for them under the state. Would that be would that be correct? Yeah, that's correct. And there's about uh -huh. 2 million children throughout L.A. County. And as you mentioned, 80 school districts, including LAUSD, right. which is our largest. Right, right. And the second largest, of course, in, in America. Just talk about how big of a responsibility uh, your job is. You, your, This county is the most populous, and it's not only the most populous, it's the most diverse, which must make it a whole lot more difficult because then you have to, you know, consider all of these different factors. And, and uh, so nothing operates as a monolith. I mean, nothing operates as a monolith anyways, but especially not for you, right? Exactly. Um, so before we sort of um, dive into all of that, I want to talk about you because I feel like your story is one of making adversity an opportunity for yourself. There have been a whole lot of, you know, bumps uh, in, in the road for you. So can you just tell me real quick about your upbringing? Are you a native Angelino, by the way? Yes, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and uh -huh. uh, grew up in a very low income neighborhood, um, one of five siblings uh, in a very brought up in a very Mexican culture. Uh, 
and went through public school, uh, LAUSD to be specific. I um, attended school and loved school until I got to uh, transition from middle school to high school where I just didn't see the sense in it and didn't really enjoy school and ended up dropping out of high school after being there for one week. Why do you think that was? Um, I think that um, some of my friends were going to a different high school. My yeah. older siblings had already dropped out of school and were working. I wanted to make money. I wanted to be able to buy a car and buy clothes and things that I liked. Um, I didn't have parents who really understood the educational system. I never understood why we went to school. I thought it was just a place you went because your parents worked and you needed to be cared for or babysat. Uh, so I didn't understand any of that. And to me, it made more sense to work than to continue with high school. Yeah, as it does, by the way, for a lot of um, low-income um, children, right? I mean, uh, right now, I think so so many uh, people at, you know, especially low-income uh Children who live in low-income families, excuse me, they some of them are not even able to log on right to to school right now because they have other responsibilities. Maybe they're helping their parents. So um, I think that's you know totally understandable. And right now, I think all of that has been so exacerbated. But something for you, I think, is different than for most, which is that um, at a very young age, you had you became a mother, right? And then when you went to UCLA, because you're a Bruin twice for all Actually, of our three times. Listeners. Three times? Oh, okay. What What was the third degree? The, is that a, the PhD? I got a doctorate. So I have Doc- my BA, uh, master's in social welfare, and a doctorate uh-huh. in education. All right. So that's even better. The, the audience already loves you. The ratings are already going up. <laughs> uh, but tell us, um, tell me a little bit about becoming a mother at such a young age. How does that impact the way that, in which you see your job today? Well, becoming a mother completely changed my life. Uh, I was 16 when I became a mother, uh, and to complicate it even more, I was the mother to a child who was born with a severe disability, a neural tube defect called spina bifida. So when my son was born, um, he had to have um, 10 operations before his first year to keep him alive. Uh, He had a lot of complications. There were a lot of doctors coming to speak to me about him. Uh, social workers. I didn't understand any of them. I didn't understand what was going on. And it was really becoming a parent to a child that I knew was going to need a lot uh, that motivated me to go back to school and get an education so that I could be a better parent. Mm -hmm. How did you, though, manage... I can can barely, like, manage, you know, all of my homework and LSAT studies. I mean, how did you manage going to UCLA with four kids? How do you juggle that, right? Well, even getting to UCLA was a challenge. I I started off at a community college and I was taking one class at a time and working full time. And I had, you know, children and other responsibilities. And, um, you know, it was very hard. Um, But when you're living in poverty and, you know, you're facing all these other challenges in your life, I was really determined to finish school. Uh, I just made it my mantra that I was going to finish school no matter what. Uh, At the time, I had a husband who didn't want me to go to school. My family didn't understand, you know, you're married, you have children, you know, that should be your priority. Why are you going to school now? Um, So it was very difficult, but I just set my mind to it and and knew that that was the best thing for me and for my children. Do you ever think back to a moment during that time of hardship and somehow that somehow that influences your recommendations, policy making? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you take your experiences with you. And when I'm out there um, serving 80 school districts where 70% of the students are low income, uh, many of them with disabilities and other challenges, I know what they're experiencing. I know how they feel disconnected. I know how their parents need additional support. I know how resources beyond instruction are necessary to help families uh, stay on track and for children to stay in the educational system. And I carry that with me on every decision that I make. Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's dive into that, right? Let's dive into all those school districts. Um, so again, you being superintendent of, uh, of LA County uh, for education, you preside over America's largest regional education agency, right? Right now, obviously, things are in complete, there's a complete mess. Inequities have been exacerbated. It's difficult for students to stay on task, much less if, you know, they have enough bandwidth to log on, you know, uh, especially for the for low-income students who we discussed. Um, so let's start with your department's strategic plan. Talk a little bit about that and its most important goal, which is student outcomes, right? In 2019, and I'll use um, LAUSD as an example because they're the largest uh, school district over, you know, uh, within 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 your oversight, I guess. 37.7% of all students were, quote, prepared for college, while the graduation rate was 82.1%. So my question for you, you know, I was kind of looking at this yesterday, and, you know, it's a little mind-blowing, right? And you think what the impact of that is right now. So why do you think this gap exists and how can you and and school districts right now seize this moment when there's so much transformation already in the offing to do something about this this gap so first of all i'd like to say that this pandemic that hit all of us by surprise is only spot putting a spotlight on inequities that we know have existed for decades and decades um, you yeah. know, if you look at all the negative outcomes, whether it's homelessness, high school dropouts, um, health and chronic uh, disease and, and problems, you know, who is living in poverty, who is underperforming in instruction, you'll see that it's going to be poor people who are predominantly Latino and African American. So this mm-hmm. is something that's existed for a very, very long time. And there is much work that needs to be done in order to um, close that. You can call it an opportunity gap or an achievement gap. Clearly, there are are systems, systemic racism and other issues that are impacting students and families from accessing a quality Mm -hmm. education even before they get to school. Uh, We know that if children are dealing with homelessness, mental health issues, if they're not safe in their homes, they're not going to do well in school. So um, one of the things that we're saying, and I was part of a group, uh, the Greater LA Task Force that came, brought together various sectors of Los Angeles, education, business, um, to talk about the fact that we don't wanna go back to the old LA. We want a better, improved LA. We wanna be very intentional about addressing systemic racism even specifically calling out anti-black racism and doing more to ensure that we're advocating for funds, for supports, for uh, people living in poverty and addressing Mm -hmm. some of the issues that they're facing. 
So what, what does that actually look like? What's the, is, is there a plan to close that gap? Because if many people in the largest and second largest school district in the nation are graduating, but less than half are actually prepared to go to college, and I think we see this all the time, right? When you, for example, I as a student, when I'm tasked to peer review another's work, Sometimes I get it and I'm like, what is going on, right? Like the writing is not cogent. It's all over the place. The logic is, you know, it's not cohesive. What what do we actually do about that? How can we seize this moment? And particularly um, for students who are, for example, African-Americans, Native Americans perform worse than Asian-American and Caucasian students, right? How? What is the plan? So the plan involves engaging the entire community to support our children and families. It's looking mm -hmm. at making sure that all families have resources and supports. It means that we're investing more money in education so that uh, when we live in California, one of the richest uh, states, that we invest more in ensuring that we have adequate funding for education. It means that we're ensuring that there is um, relevance in the instructional program and that we are teaching um, culturally relevant uh, instruction. You know, we've been pushing for ethnic studies. We've been pushing to make sure that children of color see themselves. They feel connected to their schools. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at creating pathways for educators of color. You know, there are is a very, very already a shortage of teachers, but we need to do a lot more to make sure that children see teachers who look like them, who speak like them, who understand uh, their experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's really about making sure that we have a plan in place that all of us can support training teachers, uh, uh, making sure we have a curriculum that everybody feels that they can connect to and that we're talking to parents and students about exactly what it is they need. So we're not assuming mm -hmm. that we have all the answers, but really empowering parents and students to have a stronger voice in um, their child's education. Yeah, but I guess I guess my, my other question would then be, if you do invest more resources into education, um, and if you introduce new, even or even enhance already the the, the curriculum that already exists, you know nationally, um, only thirty four percent of eighth graders are proficient in reading in, in, in the United States. So even if you were to introduce a culturally relevant curriculum or any kind of curriculum for that matter that involves needing real comprehension and critical thinking skills, do students right now have the capacity to absorb it? Well, students always have the capacity to absorb it. I mean, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're not just doing what we've always done, but looking at different ways of connecting and providing individual mm -hmm. support to students to catch them up, that we're giving them the additional tutoring, that they're getting one-on-one -on -one instruction, that you know they're being evaluated and identified uh, if they have any type of barrier that's preventing them from learning. So those mm -hmm. are some of the things that we need to do. We also need to look at, even when we do have resources that come into our schools and districts, that those resources are being spent appropriately, that they're being spent 
um, for the students that they were intended to support. So under the mm -hmm. local control accountability plan, districts are funded in a way where they get additional support for their children that are low income, for their English language learners, and for their foster youth. So we need to mm -hmm. make sure that those dollars are being spent and appropriately and they're being um, um, intentionally targeted towards the students they were meant to support. Right. And of course, your office is um, is in charge of that effort. At least it is in L.A. County. Um, I, just a, a little bit more about sort of the, the assumptions, the foundations of education um, in, in L.A. County and in California. What do you think are the biggest falsehoods that policymakers and educational advocates tell themselves that in turn inhibit them from moving the needle forward on racial equity in education and, and just overall. What are those assumptions that sort of need to be changed that have been in place for a very long time at the highest levels? I think part of it is really having high expectations and believing that um, all students can learn that there's no question uh, about the student's ability or the questioning of whether parents um, from low income or parents of color are somehow less engaged or less concerned about their child's education. Um, so but has are... that been like the belief at the highest level? Is that really, is that what impedes uh, progress when it comes to racial equity and performance overall? I, I don't know if overall, I mean, people have biases. Um, people certainly say that they believe that all children can learn. But when you look at the actions, when you look at how schools are funded, when you look at how programs are implemented, sometimes um, the actions don't necessarily follow the words um, that you hear. I think a, another really big issue is just a hopelessness. And I think that hopelessness doesn't just come from leaders, but it comes from children and families themselves. You know, there are people that feel like, oh, my God, we've, we've had this achievement gap forever. The, there are so many barriers. There are so many systems that need to be changed. There are so mm -hmm. many issues that impact a child's ability to learn that it can be overwhelming. And I think sometimes uh, we need to make sure that our students believe that they have the ability to um to succeed in a system that they may not always feel like they belong or connected to. We need to make sure parents believe that. And we do you need feel to like they sure currently believe that do. way? Do you think they currently believe that they can do it? Students? students? I think that there are some students, you know, I think actually in working, you know, for over 30 years with students, there are a lot of students that lack confidence and kind of doubt whether or not their college material or whether or not um, they fit in or whether or not school is for them or question whether people really care about them. And I think that absolutely uh, we need to work on empowering our children. That's why I think ethnic studies is so important. I think the, the cultural relevancy, the empowerment um, is so important. Getting children to know their culture and how strong um, the, the strength of their culture rather than seeing it as a deficit uh, is, is critical. You know, I mentioned some reading levels at the top, and we talk about how maybe cert, cer, certain subjects are maybe difficult uh, for students, giving, given all of these factors the, that surround the educational experience. You know, I've heard from some in, in the teaching community that there are skills and curricula that maybe are just too rigorous at certain levels, that in fact, the, re, the, the levels that I, um, the, sorry, the, the statistics that I cited to you may not actually be 
t- really telling us that much uh, because certain skills perhaps uh, are not age appropriate for children and that it, we're just blowing through subjects really quickly in, in grades. Do, I mean, has that been your observation that material is too rigorous at certain points? I think children rise to the expectations that you set for them. And if you're scaffolding and preparing mm-hmm. students and making sure that they're, you're moving them and improving them along, uh, I don't believe that it's too rigorous. I've seen students do amazing things that I that just blows my mind. So I, I, I really don't believe in that. Uh, I think that um, we have to have a very rigorous instructional program. Clearly, we have to have supports in place to, to ensure that children are able to um, reach the levels that we have um, expected of them. You once told um, a UCLA interviewer that your time as an undergraduate there, quote, taught you how to really how to really think independently. I can say that is certainly true for me, at least cultivate, probably maybe not teach. I pro- was taught at uh, LAUSD how to do that, but maybe cultivate um, for, for myself in particular. Do you believe that schools right now in LA County are optimally teaching students how to think for themselves. Yeah, I absolutely do. You know, you have to remember when you have 80 school districts and thousands of schools that it's going to be different depending on what school you're attending. Uh, Each school district has their own school board that makes decisions in terms of uh, what direction that school is going to go in. And, And throughout LA County, you see pockets of excellence and Um, instruction that is just outstanding and then you certainly see areas where you think there's definitely room for improvement. But let me just push back a little bit, right? How can the notion of adaptability and also this idea uh, that students can think for themselves be true all while we see that 40% of students are not ready for college? That's by that's by California's own admission, right? That's on their dashboard. How can those things be true simultaneously? I think you have to look at where students start off. So again, I'm going to go back to the fact that there are students that are entering um, our preschool programs and kindergarten programs that are far behind their peers because they haven't had the opportunity to participate in early Why are they far behind them? Because they haven't had access to preschool, they haven't had access to parents who have the means to um, read to them, to supplement their instruction. You know, you have some parents, affluent parents, who are well-educated, who when they go on vacation, they supplement their child's instructional program by taking them to museums by um, exposing them, even the number of words that they use and how they speak to their children because they've had the privilege of having more education. We have over 70,000 homeless children, young, very young children that are living on streets. We have children whose parents are incarcerated. We have children who are struggling with all kinds of barriers that prevent them from learning. And that's why as a social worker, you know, one of the things that I constantly focus on, I don't care how strong the instructional program is, until you address the basic needs of children, that they have food, that they have shelter, that they feel safe, that they feel supported, um, we're always going to have these opportunity or achievement gaps. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that goes into like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Before they can attain any kind of real achievement, they must have those basic needs met. I want to also ask you a little bit about mental well-being. I know this is an area you're passionate about. I know that yesterday, as of this taping, uh, there were, L.A. County allowed, uh, or maybe even before yesterday, L.A. County allowed some elementary schools to apply for waivers to, for kids to actually get back into the classroom. But, of course, many uh, many are not going to get back into the classroom, at least not for right now. How are you balancing the concerns of socialization, mental well-being, and, um, you know, with... Um, with obviously the healthcare needs presented to us. And what does the road look like ahead? How do you make sure, I guess, that students are not behind in social emotional development, uh, academic development, all of that stuff? So, you know, we know this is a really difficult time emotionally for everyone, not just Mm -hmm. children. We are in a worldwide pandemic. People have lost loved ones. People have lost their jobs. People have not been able to see their children and grandchildren. Uh, Adults and children alike are really struggling. We've seen an increase in suicidal ideation. Uh, And so we are very, very concerned about the well-being of children uh, and adults and their families. So what schools are doing is having their counselors reach out and do assessments uh, well-being assessments, checking in with children and families to make sure they're All safe. LA County schools? All of LA County schools have, okay. we, all of their counselors have gone through trainings. They're reaching out. So counselors, social workers, teachers are, are being trained on how to assess and identify signs of distress or mental health disorders in children. We have a strong partnership with the Department of Mental Health that is working with us to um, uh, be trauma-informed schools and how to take action and how to access resources. Uh, You know, one of the things that's really interesting is that there are lots of people who are reluctant to engage in therapy or counseling, but through this Zoom process, believe it or not, um, people are feeling more comfortable. They're not having to go into an office that they don't know or feel you know, comfortable in from the yeah. privacy of their own home, they can have a, a conversation with a counselor. And I think in some ways they don't think of it as therapy. They think of it as like, oh, I'm just having a conversation with my child's counselor. Uh, and so we really are doing everything possible to make sure we're bringing this to the attention of parents, of students, uh, all of our partners that are supporting uh, children and assessing and reaching out to those children that um, we feel need some additional support. Mm-hmm. And post-COVID, when, because eventually people are going to get back into the classroom, teachers, students, administrators, everybody, um, you know, I think this issue of physical safety will also be brought up. You know, we had the Saugus shooting actually this year. It happened this year. I think we sometimes have a short memory. You know, it happened this year. And I remember um, after the Parkland shooting, I held a town hall at my high school with the then superintendent. And I remember at the time, you know, uh, that we were told that there would be many measures put into place. I, I was told by an LAUSD member, a board member, that there were discussions about potentially installing a school safety czar at, you know, LAUSD. No, nothing really has happened yet. There haven't been any tangible actions taken Um so what happens? I mean, why not? And and how do you make sure that when students get back into school that they don't have to fear, you know, somebody, some dangerous person, right? 
So, I mean, right now, the focus for schools is first making sure that children are safe, that their families are being fed, and that they have a plan in place for reopening. Their focus right now is really making sure they're meeting the safety protocols uh, from that the Department of Public Health has required for all of them. So they're just right now making sure that they are that they have the PPE, that everybody's wearing a mask, that they're disinfecting, that they're social distancing, that they're you know that they have protocols in place so that when everybody comes back, they're talking about the safety protocols um, around health. Obviously, there are other dangers that schools always have to look at. Schools are required to have safety plans developed that includes the situation of an active shooter. In fact, at Saugus, which is one of our districts, they had an excellent plan in place, you know, to address that. And so that's going to be unfortunately an. But it didn't work, thing. right? Well, it's not that it didn't work. They, I think, they activated their plan very well. You can never be a hundred percent, you know. Uh, you know, uh, there's never a, an insurance of 100% that you can stop somebody from walking in with a gun and shooting. But they responded to it appropriately. They had everything in place. They had a plan in place. They supported the students. They supported the faculty. And I think they did an excellent job. The Department of Mental Health went in there and provided ongoing counseling every single day. We had people from our office, additional counselors going in and supporting. So I think districts are very clear and have plans on how to address any type of safety issue that comes up at a school. Right now, on top of that, and with the same amount of funding, in fact, mm -hmm. less as schools are facing um, cuts in funding, are having to purchase all of these, uh, the PPE, and implement all of these additional health practices, bringing in more school nurses, making sure they can maintain that physical distancing of even their youngest children. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on schools, and they've been working very hard to get this right. Mm -hmm. Just to button this conversation up, because I know you have a bunch of stuff to get to, I'm sure. Obviously, your passion for equity, for children's well-being, uh, not, you know, not just academic and silo, but all kinds of well-being, you know, as a mosaic, if you will. I, I think your, you know, your, your passion comes through um, in a very palpable way. What advice would you give to the Bruin out there who is maybe very interested in some kind of public service, but all of this has somehow discouraged them and they just feel like it, there's too much chaos, too much pandemonium. What kind of advice would you give to them, to somebody who is just as interested in public service, you know, as, as you are? I'd say one, you have to follow your heart. If within your heart, you're the type of person that wants to make a difference and that wants to create change and improve the world, uh, then you need to do that. Uh, yeah, there are challenges in no matter what type of profession you select, you're gonna face challenges, but I don't think there's anything more rewarding than it being able to have an impact on the trajectory of someone's life, especially when we're talking about a student that you can change the outcomes of that student by working with them, by creating new policy and making sure that uh, you're an advocate for the people that you are, are deciding to serve. Superintendent Eduardo, I am so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to one day meeting you in person when everything's safe and fine. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. And good luck to all my fellow Bruins out there. Be safe. A big thank you to Superintendent Duardo for recording during this hectic time. You can stalk her or follow her, whatever you choose to call it, on Twitter at Deborah Duardo. Next month, the barriers and bosses of the TV writing room overwhelmed her, so she took matters into her own hands, 
She published a book that's now a bestseller at Target. She's a UCLA grad and disability rights advocate. Her name, Samantha Manis. You will be enamored with her outstanding work, as I was, and get to appreciate the trials and tribulations she's faced in Hollywood. We will get the real scoop about working in Tinseltown. You won't want to miss it. But for now, thank you for joining me. Please rate, review, subscribe, stay healthy, and I'll see you right back here on the next episode of Find Your Calling.